So today I'd like to welcome Dr. Burton Lee. Uh, Dr. Lee is Associate Professor at Georgetown and uh, is Head of Education for the Critical Care Fellows up at uh, Washington Hospital Center where the NIH Critical Care Fellows, the Georgetown ones, and whoever else is lucky enough to work with him uh, can go to train. Uh, he runs the summer education block for the first three weeks of July and uh, winter education block around February. It's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Lee, and we'll get started. All right, well, thank you very much. Um, so I'm delighted to be here. Um, I'm going to be talking to you not about a critical care topic, so uh, I'm going to talk to you instead about the concept of numeracy. And so I guess the first thing is how many of you know what numeracy refers to? There are very few hands. And it's, it's actually a bit of a cultural thing because it turns out apparently in the UK and some of the other countries, uh, everybody knows that word because it's actually emphasized even, even through primary school. But uh, in the US, for whatever reason, that word is not very, uh, very commonly known. So what numeracy refers to is that it's a similar word as literacy, okay? So if I were to ask you, how many of you in this room are illiterate? Uh, hopefully, none of you would raise your hand because it would be impossible for you to be sitting in your, uh, in your chair right now if you couldn't read and write. Okay, so that's literacy. But numeracy is a very similar idea, except it's talking about facility of using numbers. Okay, so it's actually a mathematical uh, competency, if you will. And we're not talking about fancy things like calculus or differential equation, things like that. This is just a very basic numerical concept, okay? So uh, there's a whole series of talks that I give to medical students and fellows about numeracy, that is the minimal numeracy that a physician needs to have. And so I'm, I was asked to give uh, just um, a part of that lecture, so that's what I'll be doing today. Um, so let me just uh, ask you a very stupid question, which is when you make your decisions as doctors, do you want it to be based upon science or something magical and mystical and kind of in your intuitive guesswork? Well, I mean, hopefully you're all undergoing scientific training so that every decision that you make is based upon good, reproducible science, yeah? Because if I discover something, but you cannot do it, then either I am lying to you or I'm a magician, okay? But if, if you can do what I can do, then that makes it science. So, so here is some data from um, some of the uh, recent literature. So here's a paper by Dr. Ioannidis, who took 34 of the most highly cited articles in the clinical literature. So, the, uh, so these topics have had at least 1,000 citations or more. And then they wanted to see how many of these can be reproduced to see if it can be confirmed. That's a fair thing to look at. And what they found was that they were only able to confirm 59% of these articles, okay? So think about now all the things that you think are scientifically or evidence-based interventions in critical care. What that says is if some of these things were to get retested five years from now, 10 years from now, maybe about half of these will not really be reproducible and will not be true. So I'm sure you've heard the adage when you're in medical school um, and henceforth that half of what you're learning is wrong, okay? And it is literally true. Half of what you're doing is, is actually wrong. 
in a similar article by Prasad, they took 35 New England Journal of Medicine articles, and these articles were retesting an established clinical practice to see, again, how much of this is reproducible. And now these are only articles in the, in the New England Journal of Medicine, and what they found was a very similar number. Only 46% of these could be confirmed. Okay? And then what about in basic science? That's clinical science. That's a little bit more messy. So here's a paper in Nature that looked at the field of hematology oncology, and people who looked at this were actually uh, um, pharmaceutical companies who wanted to know where should I invest all this money if I want to make a profit, and obviously they want to invest in research that's reproducible for them. So they retested all these famous papers in basic sciences in the field of hematology oncology, and their findings were even worse. Only 11% can be reproduced. So somewhere between 11 to 60% is reproducible, which, which of course means there's a lot that, 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 that we currently believe is actually wrong. So that's the big overview, and the term that's been applied recently to this phenomenon is called medical reversals. That is, this year we say you should give this drug, or you should do this intervention, and then oops, five years later, never mind, that wasn't really true. Okay? How many of those things have actually happened in your, uh, in your lifetime? Okay? I can think of maybe 10, 12 things already, uh, and so it's not an uncommon phenomenon. So there are different reasons why medical reversals occur, uh, and this is just a partial list. Of course, if your paper has poor methodology, then it's not likely to be good science, and so therefore there's a higher probability that there will be a reversal. Okay? Another problem, a huge problem, is the conflict of interest. Many of these papers are done by pharmaceutical companies and device makers, and they build in a lot of bias, and if you're not aware of that, you, you might actually be a pawn to these companies and not really looking at science, but looking at more like propaganda and advertising. And then finally, uh, it's the concept of innumeracy. That is, even if there is perfect methodology, there's no conflict of interest, it turns out that we as human beings are not particularly skilled at understanding simple mathematical concepts that are relevant to understanding science. So it's a concept of innumeracy. So, uh, so to uh, fourth-year Georgetown students and also our critical care fellows, we require that they undergo training in these various areas. So we teach them how to do critical appraisal of randomized controlled trials and systematic reviews. We talk about ethics and conflict of interest. But for today's purposes, we're going to concentrate on the concept of innumeracy. And, 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 and for today's lecture, it's going to be the concept of apophenia, which is one aspect of innumeracy. Okay? So how many people understand what the term apophenia refers to? Anybody? Okay. Again, it's similar to the concept of numeracy, perhaps. So let me illustrate the concept of numeracy first, and then we'll go on to the concept of apophenia. So here's an interesting paper by Giger Renzer. This is a German scientist. He's written lots of interesting articles. And he actually published a paper simply asking how numerate is the average Western civilization individual. Okay? So he went to all of these cities in Western Europe and the U.S. and asked them a, um, if they understood what it meant when the weather report says that there's a 30% probability of rain. Now, this is not some complex idea. This is not a scientific concept. This is something that everybody uses 
hopefully every single day, when you look in the paper, listen to the radio, et cetera, it's going to tell you what the chance of rain or chance of snow is. So, so he just wanted to know, do people really understand what it means when it says that there's a 30% chance of rain? So the options they were given, and these are random people on the streets in Berlin, Rome, and New York City, et cetera, and they were asked, it, um, is a 30% referring to time? That is, 30% of the hours in the day. So you have 24 hours in the day. Maybe it will rain eight hours of the 24. Okay, so that's one possibility. Another possibility is 30% of the region. So let's say it doesn't rain exactly in Baltimore, but maybe in Silver Springs and in Columbia. So 30% of the geographic mileage is what's going to receive the rain. Or thirdly, whether it's 30% of the days that are similar to tomorrow. Okay? So they just ask people, which of these concepts is the true meaning of 30% chance of rain? So what do you think an average uh, person in the Western civilization answered? Time. Okay? So if you knew nothing, what's the percentage that they will pick one of these answers? That's your first test of numeracy in this room here. 33%. Okay? So only 34% got the correct answer. Okay? Now, that has pretty important implications. So if you are a physician and you are trying to explain to a patient, if I do this procedure, you have a 5% chance of a pneumothorax. Okay? What does that mean to your patient? It's not exactly clear that they understand what you mean by something as simple as the percent risk of something. Yeah? What if you get into the medical topic? So here's a paper by Windish, and this is a study where they took 239 articles in major journals, as you can see, like American Journal of Medicine, New England Journal of Medicine, et cetera, and they asked, uh, uh, um, what they did was they looked at the articles and looked at all the commonly used statistical techniques, okay? And they made a list, and then they asked um, 277 internal medicine residents in the state of Connecticut to see if they understood these concepts, okay? So what they asked about was, do you understand what the meaning of 95% confidence interval is? And they asked them, what's the meaning of p-value greater than 0.05? And it was a multiple choice test to see if they really understood what these things meant. Now again, these are not the most sophisticated statistical concepts. These are basic concepts that every physician needs to understand if they're gonna be able to make scientific decisions. Would you agree? And so what they found was that uh, internal medicine residents, only 12% understood the concept of 95% interval, and 59% understood what it means to have a p-value greater than 0.05. Now, you guys are not internal medicine residents, okay? You guys are faculty, you guys are fellows, and, and so forth. So I'm sure your numbers are much higher than this, but, but, but these are key concepts for you to really make sure that you understand. So now that's the concept of numeracy, that is, again, mathematical competence so that you can, you can properly understand uh, and live in the society, including the medical society. Here's the concept of apophenia. So what do you guys see in that picture? Bread, okay. So this was a, uh, a cheese sandwich made by a woman named Diana Duzer in Hollywood, Florida. And as you can see, she took a bite from, from there, and then she pulled it out and noticed something interesting on the cheese sandwich. What do you all see? Yeah? So do you see this face right there? 
Yeah? So then she said, oh my goodness, there is something miraculous happening here. And she thought that this was the picture of the Virgin Mary or the Madonna. Okay? So, um, so believe it or not, she actually was able to sell this for, I think, $30,000. And it's apparently sitting somewhere in Las Vegas in someone's collection. Okay? Now, now to me, you, uh, actually, that bread looks more like uh, this other Madonna, but you could decide which one has, has more uh, similarity. So, so this is what we mean by um, apophenia, is you can look at anything around the world, and it's the human nature is that we tend to see patterns, even though it's randomness. Does that make sense? So if you look at those cloud formations, what do you see on the left? Okay, some people say England, other people say a rabbit, but, but most people see some pattern, even though it's just a random cloud formation. Right? And then on the right, what do you guys see there? I think most people see horses, okay? So that's what epiphenia is referring to. It's seeing meaning or patterns in random or meaningless data. Now, this is kind of a humorous example, but that's what happens in science, is that you will get some number here, some number there, and our human nature is to see a pattern that is, ooh, this must be a difference, when in reality, it's just random observation, okay? And that causes problems. So if you remember from your statistical training, there are two major kinds of error when, when you're looking at these kind of clinical data. And one, uh, one type of error is called type 1 or alpha error. So let's just uh, illustrate to make sure everybody's on the same page. So let's say your job is to look in the sky for patterns of nuclear testing. Okay. So there's a rogue country out in North Korea, and your job is to look in the sky and see if they are messing around with nuclear warfare, okay? So if you look and you see a cloud formation like what you see there, you might say, ooh, that kind of looks a little worrisome for a mushroom cloud. But in reality, that's just actually a random cloud formation. That is not from nuclear testing. It just basically happens to look that way, okay? So if you were to conclude Ah, there's a pattern here that, that somebody's testing nuclear weapons when in reality it was just a random formation. That, as you know, is called type 1 error or alpha error. Is that okay with everybody? Uh, and then in contrast, um, uh, I'm sorry, so in a clinical paper, this is where you, uh, where you conclude that something is apparently effective, that is this drug or this intervention works, when in reality it was, it was just a random observation. So in contrast, there's type 2 or beta error. So if you were to look in the sky and, and you see that pattern, okay, that's a pretty good evidence that somebody's messing around with uh, nuclear uh, chemicals. And, but if you were to conclude, even though you see that, oh, that's just random, that's not really true, okay, then that would be the opposite error or the type 2 uh, or the beta error. So basically you would conclude that there is no pattern when it is truly not random. That is, somebody's actually messing with chemicals here, or uh, nuclear chemicals. So clinically speaking, you would conclude that something is apparently not different or not effective, and the P is not significant, when in reality that is truly effective. Okay, so, so, so if you understood that, um, let's give you a clinical illustration. So here is a paper uh, from uh, New England Journal of Medicine in 2004. And the authors of this paper looked at the role of vasopressin in setting of cardiac arrest. Okay, it's a pretty well-known study, I believe. 
But what they found was that, well, if you look at the p-values for uh, all patients here, and they looked at, let's say, the risk of, of uh, hospital discharge, hospital admissions, et cetera, none of these were statistically significant. And they kept on moving on to say, let's look at ventricular fibrillation, PEA, and again, these things were not statistically significant. However, they noticed something very interesting, which is that if you took asystole, then p-values were significant. And they concluded that for asystole, patients would benefit from uh, vasopressin. So it actually changed medical practice, uh, at least for uh, a time being. Now, the problem with this is something that we call uh, multiple testing. So I want to illustrate that by this example. Okay? So let's say um, uh, Dr. McCurdy here and I are making a bet. Now, he's a rich man, so we're going to bet $100. Okay? So here's $100 on the line, and the bet is really, really simple. We're going to play with this dice. It's a 20-sided dice, and the, and the rules are pretty simple. That is, he's going to roll the dice. If it lands on 20, he owes me 100 bucks. Okay? If it rolls on anything else, 1 through 19, I'm going to owe him $100. Is everybody okay with that bet? Does that make sense? So who's more likely to win? Okay? He's far more likely to win, right? Because uh, what's the probability of Dr. McCurdy winning here? So it should be 19 out of 20 possibilities. So it's 95% probability that he's going to win. And what's the probability that he's going to lose? So then it would be the 1 minus that, or 5%. So is that okay with everybody? All right. So should he take this bet? Is that a pretty good bet? Okay. You want to take this bet? Okay. So he takes the bet. And this is what happens. So we agree. Now he rolls the dice. And there you go. Those are the results. And I tell Mike, guess what? You rolled a 20. What did I just do? Is that a fair bet? What was the assumption? Yeah, so the assumption was that he was going to roll only one time, and if you roll one time, his chance of winning is 95%, chance of losing is 5%. What happens if you roll 10 times? Okay, eventually, if he keeps rolling, something's going to come out to be significant, right? And so that's a pretty straightforward concept of multiple testing. So notice that if you roll once, your probability of winning is 95%, and probability of losing is 5%. But if you were to roll twice, the mathematics is, is such that you would square because you've got to win both times. So it's, it becomes 91%, which means now he has a 9% chance of losing. And then you could generalize it by putting it to the nth power here, the exact same concept, but instead of doing it once or twice, you now make it uh, as many times as you want to roll. So then this is the concept of multiple testing. That is, more times you roll, the probability of losing just exponentially rises until it equals 100%. And does that just kind of, kind of intuitively make sense? If you just keep rolling, or in a clinical study, if you just keep testing hypothesis after hypothesis after hypothesis, then you're going to eventually find something that is spurious, and you're going to conclude accidentally that this might be true. And that's what we mean by apophenia. 
okay? And this is one of the major issues that we face in medicine, is that think about yourself as a fellow, when you have a data set, you just keep putting the data through. You do this test, you do that test, you, you look for this association, that association. Eventually, you're gonna find something, and we understand the fellows need that to graduate, which is why you keep doing it, but that's not very good science, okay? All right. Um, so the solution to multiple testing is pretty simple, right? What that means is that you, you should have one primary hypothesis. So in the example of, of the gambling here, we should agree up front that you're gonna roll just one time. So pretty yeah, it should be pretty straightforward. Okay, so if this was because they rolled, uh, looks like total of 12 times, there's a high probability that something's gonna randomly come out to be significant because you kept on rolling, basically, okay? And so if that's the case, then if they were to repeat this study, what should happen? If this was a random finding and you were to repeat the study, okay, then, then you're not gonna be able to reproduce it, okay? And that's exactly what they found four years later is they concentrated on a much larger population to see if this was reproducible, and once again, it was not. So pretty much what you would expect, okay? So now you guys are smart, so you're gonna be looking for multiple testing, and now you're gonna wanna do this bet again. So Dr. McCurdy is now much more numerate than before, and so he is armed with that tool, says, okay, no more trickery, I'm gonna only roll one time, I don't care, just one time, okay? So there's gonna be no multiple testing here. So we agree up front that if you roll a 20, uh, he loses, otherwise he wins, okay? It's a good bet for him. So we roll and we get a 19. So what should happen? He should win, right? What if then I said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Actually, what's the probability that in a given roll that you would get a 19? That's also one out of 20. And so I changed my mind. What I meant to look for is really 19. And so therefore, Mike, you owe me $100, okay? Does that sound like a fair deal? Okay, as ridiculous as that sounds, that's exactly what happens in clinical research all the time, okay? So, um, so um, as, as I hope you appreciate, if I specify the outcome or the role of 20 beforehand, then his probability of winning is 95% and the probability of, of, of losing is 5%. What if I got to change the outcome after I know the results? What's the probability that he would win? It's zero because I could change it to whatever I want, whatever the, the, whatever the die says if I change it, okay? So this is exactly what happens in clinical studies. So here's a, pa um, here's a paper by Mathau in JAMA 2009 they looked at 323 randomized controlled trials that was published in the major high-impact journals in 2008. And they looked at how many of these studies actually had a pre-specified primary outcome up front. That is, they already agreed up front that we're gonna look at the 28-day mortality, for example, okay? Well, it turns out that only about half or 147 of these even bothered to specify what they're studying already. Okay, then of the 147 that said, okay, this is what we wanna look for, okay, we're gonna agree on a, on a roll of 20, for example, they wanted to know how many actually changed their outcome, okay? 
And what they found was that um, 31% of the 147 actually changed their outcome. And why do you think they changed their outcome? Because it favored what they are trying to show. Because, what they, uh, uh, because, because they couldn't show it otherwise, and so the percent statistically favoring the new outcome was 83%, even though the original thing that they tried to study was not significant. So if you think about preservation of alpha error or avoiding amphiphenia, out of the original 323 studies, it was only preserved in 33% of the time. Okay? Now, it's worth just kind of pausing because none of you would gamble with me if I did this to you. <laughs> okay? But that's what you're doing every single time you read a paper and you ignore these very simple concepts in mathematics. So the solution to multiple testing is what? Is you want to concentrate and agree on one primary outcome. You, you can't keep rolling, okay? Second thing is you don't want to have outcome changes because that's not fair. You're going to lose every single time. And so the solution to that is you want to pre-register your outcomes. And that's one of the high-quality things that you should be looking for when you're doing journal club or any other review of the literature is did they specify this up front before they actually uh, start to analyze the data. Okay? Um, this is just a picture uh, from um, Google Earth uh, about some rock formation in Russia. And I think most people see faces in there. So now, uh, Dr. McCurdy's even smarter. So now he says, you're going to only roll once. We're going to agree up front that it'll be 20, and you can't change it. So I said, fine, we're not going to change it. So then he says, okay, now I feel like I have a 95% chance of winning, 5% chance of losing. So we agree to one roll, and, and we have all pre-registered 20 as the relevant outcome. Okay? So now he rolls. Bummer. He gets a 20, and now he owes me 100 bucks, and the paper gets published. Okay? What's wrong with this picture? Does anybody see anything wrong with this? Did you actually roll it? Yeah, I rolled it. Absolutely. Are you, are you questioning my integrity? <laughs> so what I didn't show you is the rest of the field. Okay? So, so in fact... I actually committed multiple testing by rolling number of times, and then what am I doing? I'm only showing you what I want to show you. So essentially, I'm turning in the back, rolling my dice in secret, and then once the 20 comes up, I'm showing Mike only the 20 and saying, you owe me $100. Okay? What is that called when you do that clinically? Anybody know? So it's called publication bias, right? I can do as many trials as I want, but if I only publish the results that are favorable to my point, that's called publication bias. Does that happen? Yeah, it happens all the time. Okay? So if I roll as many times as I want and I only show you the favorable outcome, once again, the probability of winning goes to zero. Probability of losing goes to 100%. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so here is a... Um, a pretty classic paper now by Turner in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2008. And they took uh, all published and unpublished randomized controlled trials that were evaluating the efficacy of medications involving 12,000 patients with depression. And the FDA reviewed all of these studies 
And, and they independently said that some of these studies are positive and some are either negative or inconclusive. So notice that about half of them were positive and half were not. So now think about it. Some were published, some were not published. Okay? So what do you think uh, happened as far as not published if you are positive results as opposed to if you're negative or inconclusive? Okay? If you had a positive finding, the chance of it being not published was really very low. Okay, only one study out of 37 did not get published. However, if it was negative, then the majority, they kind of kept hidden. And then the story gets worse. If it was, if it was published uh, on the positive idea, then basically all 36 that were published was published with a conclusion that says this really works. Okay? However, Remember, 22 of the 36 were not published if it was negative, but 11 of the remaining studies that were not published, uh, I mean, th that were published, they actually did a spin. Even though it was a negative study, they actually spun it as a positive study. Okay? So only three studies got truly published as a negative result. So now, as far as you are concerned, okay, um, how many of these studies would you know about? Out of the 37 and 36, how many would you know about? Well, of course, you would only know the studies that are published, right? So how many studies were published in total? Well, it turns out to be a nice convenient number. There is 36 plus 11 plus 3, which is 50, okay? And, and if you just read the title and the abstract, what percentage of the 50 studies would say that the drugs actually work? Yeah, so it's going to be 47 out of 50, or about 94%. Okay? And that's what's happening in, um, in the medical literature currently. So uh, here's a systematic review uh, by the Cochrane Group, and they looked at uh, the odds of a paper getting published if it had a positive uh, outcome versus a negative outcome. And as you can see, the odds ratio was about 3.91, or about four times higher odds of getting published if it was a positive finding. So what you really want to know is not what the study says, but what the entire world literature is saying. Does it make a difference? Well, here's an example of chemotherapy for um, a particular kind of cancer. There's two different meta-analyses that's comparing survival ratios about the benefit of chemotherapy. In meta-analysis number one, it showed a significant improvement. As you can see, the survival ratio was higher and p-value was significant. However, for the second meta-analysis, the uh, p-value was not significant and it didn't look like it actually helped. And then, uh, and then consistent with what we've been talking about, notice that this study included no trials that were unpublished, okay? But if you include the entire world literature, okay, then the, the, uh, the negative studies get included, which makes it not significant. So um, I don't know how many of you are aware of the controversy around Tamiflu, but Tamiflu is a great example of all of these kind of issues. So as you know, Tamiflu is given for people with influenza potentially, okay? Um, do you guys give it in your ICUs? Yeah, it, it, it's given practically all over the world, and various countries have stockpiled this drug, as you know, with cost of billions and billions of dollars because it's based on what information or what evidence? 
Well, it's based on two randomized controlled trials by Roche that says it seems to improve outcome. Okay? But it turns out that Roche actually did 10 randomized controlled trials. And how many did they publish, do you think? Just those two. And in fact, the largest study that has a huge number of patients is not published. Why do you think they didn't publish it? Okay. And the systematic reviewers from Cochrane Group have been asking for this data, and Roche keeps on saying, oh, yeah, we'll give it to you. We'll give it to you. And that was 2009. Okay. So it's a huge problem. So the problem with multiple testing is addressed by having one primary outcome, and then you shouldn't be allowed to change outcomes after the fact. So that's the idea of registering randomized controlled trials. So you, so you need to pre-register these outcomes. And then the publication bias is an important uh, problem with medical reversal. So you need, to, you need to do complete reporting of all randomized controlled trials. Okay? Now, let me bring this all together with a critical care example. So I'm, I'm sure many of you have seen this, uh, this paper by DeBacker. So they're looking at um, the comparison in patients with shock, um, the difference between norepinephrine versus dopamine. And what they found is that for all patients, there was no significant difference between the two medications in terms of overall survival. Okay? Now, if you look at the paper, it will say that, but then it will go on to say what? That if you have cardiogenic shock, right, then uh, norepinephrine should be used. In fact, several papers uh, since then say the exact same thing because if you look, uh, the hypovolemic subgroup and septic shock uh, subgroup, it doesn't seem to make a difference, but for cardiogenic shock group, okay, the dopamine seems to be not very good. Okay? So what's the problem already in that kind of analysis? Okay, it's, again, the multiple testing. So it doesn't mean that's not true, but you're running into multiple testing. They basically roll the dice four times, so it may be true, but that's not very good level of, of, uh, of evidence, okay? So to illustrate this further, let me give you this uh, pretty famous example from the ISIS-2 study. For those of you who remember the ISIS-2 study, this is a study that compared aspirin okay, versus placebo for patients with acute myocardial infarction. I mean, this is one of the landmark trials in cardiology that kind of, uh, you know, really spawned the era of uh, evidence-based medicine. So 17,000 patients with acute, uh, acute MI, aspirin uh, significantly lowered the uh, risk of vascular death uh, with a p-value that was very impressive, right? Less than 0 0.00001, and aspirin seems to be superior. Just like the dopamine norepinephrine example, I'll give you three different subgroups. And in subgroup A, it looked like aspirin really worked. But for, for subgroups B and C, aspirin does not work, right? So if you were to believe this data, then you would say, well, if a patient comes to you with subgroup B, they shouldn't be given aspirin, right? Because that's what, how some people are in, interpreting the dopamine versus norepinephrine trial, right? Again, this is the problem with multiple testing. But the, but, the, um, but the other issue is when you look at this, it turns out that those were what the subgroups were. Okay? So unless you happen to believe in zodiac signs and horoscopes, okay, this is obviously just a random observation from multiple testing. Okay? 
And the interesting backstory is that the authors of this paper were actually numerate, and they refused to do these kinds of subgroup analyses. But the editor um, of Lancet said, we're not publishing your paper unless you work with us, and we want to see all these subgroups for men and women, you know, diabetics, non-diabetics, et cetera. So since they want their paper published in a prestigious journal, they complied, so they provided them with the subgroup analysis that they were requesting, but they also gave them this as, as their real point to say, this is why we're reluctant to give you all these subgroup analyses. So the editors published everything that they wanted. They didn't publish this because it's kind of embarrassing, okay? But, but the point is, is, is that these subgroup analyses, because of multiple testing, okay, is more likely to be apophenia than, than actual truth, okay? Now, um, the New England Journal in 2007 actually has a, uh, has a very nice brief summary of this issue. So what they illustrate here are three different kinds of subgroup analyses. So what I want you to note in each of these three studies is that the treatment was better for the combined group than placebo, okay? So treatment was always better than control, but look at study number one, which says that for men, it's significant, and but for women, it overlaps the uh, one value there, so that is not significant. And then, if you look at down the line, that's exactly what it says for every one of these studies. Study one, study two, study three. It seems to work for men, but not for women. But overall, it was effective uh, in all three studies. So what you can do is two really, really simple things to see whether or not a subgroup analysis is something that you should take seriously or not. Okay? I'll give you the really easy one that a non-medical person can do, which is simply to draw a line that goes for the overall group like this, like that you see there, and see if that line hits the confidence interval for both men and women. So for study one, does that line go through the confidence interval for men and women? Okay. What that means is that it's not likely to be two different populations. Okay. So what that suggests is it's probably not a real finding. Same thing here. If you were to draw a line right there, as you see, does that go through the confidence intervals for men and women? It does. So once again, it's not likely to be a real finding. But this is where you would worry. This one does not hit the confidence intervals uh, for one or both of them, and this is more likely to be a real finding that you might want to explore further, okay? So it's a, it's a quick and dirty, really simple, um, uh, qualitative way to see whether a subgroup is something that you should worry about or not. Now, if you wanted a more uh, statistical quantitative approach, that's also very easy, because all you have to do is look for this p-value of heterogeneity or p-value of, uh, of interaction, okay? So here they're listing the p-value for heterogeneity, and what that means is this value of 0.95, it's a not significant. There's no significant difference, so therefore they're the same population. Men and women are the same here, so there really is no difference, and you, you don't need to treat them separately. Same thing here, p-value of 0.20, but here is a p-value of 0.01, and this is more likely to be a true difference between men and women, okay? So in other words, you can do a quick and dirty test and saying, I'm just going to draw a line. It looks like it doesn't connect. Or if you want to be fancier, you can look at 
the actual uh, quantitative analysis, either way, um, it's pretty simple. Okay, so now let me put that back on there. So what do you think about the cardiogenic shock subgroup? Does it look different from the overall group? So remember, there's two ways you can tell. One way is to look at the, um, the all patients, which is right here, and just simply draw a line. Okay? And it overlaps all three groups. So again, it's not likely that the cardiogenic shock group is different from septic shock or hypovolemic shock. However, there's even a better way, which is even in their own article, the p-value for interaction was 0.87. Okay? So either way you look at it, it suggests that this is just um, um, apophenia, basically. So we talked about multiple testing. You need one primary outcome. Uh, outcome changes, you want to pre-register. You want complete reporting of all randomized trials to avoid publication bias. And then for subgroups, you need to pre-specify just a few subgroups and realize that it's primarily for hypothesis generation rather than hypothesis testing, okay? So we, we talked about this is one of many reasons why there are so many medical reversals. And if you don't think about these issues very carefully, you're going to be doing a lot of things where half of which, in the end, in five years, is going to be shown to be actually no longer valid. So medical reversals, you have to think about methodology, conflict of interest, and then today's topic of, of innumeracy, and these are some of the, uh, of, the, of the subtopics that we're trying to cover and get you to uh, um, appreciate. So let me conclude with this, okay? So this is a pretty famous case that you may have already uh, heard about. It was, it was discussed in, um, in, in various articles, various books, including the BMJ in, in 2000. So uh, there was a woman in England named Sally Clark, and in 1996, her first son dies uh, suddenly. Okay, so they thought she died of SIDS, sudden infant uh, death syndrome. In 1998, she has another child, and that son also dies suddenly. So there's two SIDS cases, obviously tragic. The mother is distraught, but to compound her distress, she's brought to trial, and she's accused of murder. Why? because it's pretty unusual to have two SIDS cases in one family, right? And Professor Sir Roy Meadows is a professor of pediatrics at one of the eminent uh, um, universities in England, and he's the expert witness, and this is what he says. He says that the probability of SIDS is one in 8,000, okay? One in 8,000. So what is the probability that there would be two SIDS death. Okay, so they actually, it's not completely independent, but I think epidemiologically, it's only slightly linked. So they, are, they, were, they argue that it should be pretty much ignored. Okay, so let, let's assume for our purposes, for simplicity, that these are two independent events. Okay, so is it uh, one in 8,000? or 1 in 8,000 plus 1 in 8,000, or 1 in 8,000 times 1 in 8,000. Okay, so how many think it's, it, it's the first one? Okay, second one? Okay, how about the third one? Okay, that's what majority of you think. So they argue that the probability of uh, this happening was pretty unlikely, and so the jury convicted her of murder. Okay, 
So do you agree with the jury? Does that make sense? Well, it made a sense to a lot of people at the time, and she was really vilified for this being a horrible mother who would kill her own children. So in 2003, uh, after three years in prison, actually, her case got overturned, and it was actually overturned by a bunch of statisticians and mathematicians. Okay? And tragically, however, even though she was released uh, in 2007, she was found dead in her home, uh, and she apparently had become an alcoholic after her, uh, her, um, her conviction, which is understandable, but still tragic nevertheless. And, and, uh, and this is actually is a great example of what we've been talking about. Uh, and in fact, they wrote about this as being one of the great miscarriages of justice in modern British legal history. It's known as the prosecutor's fallacy. So can anybody think of what happened? What's the fallacy here? Because remember, there was, a, there was a professor, Sir Roy Meadows, from an eminent university testifying. So what was the error of this famous and now infamous pediatrician? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. So again, this is the exact same issue of multiple testing. So if you're having trouble with that, think of this, okay? What's the probability that Mike McCurdy will win the lottery? I think somebody just won like $450 million in California or something like that, right? What's the probability that he would win the lottery? Okay. It's pretty unlikely, right? It's like one in whatever, you know, uh, millions of people who actually do this. But what's the probability that somebody is going to win the lottery? It's pretty high, right? Someone's probably going to win it sometime. And that's a huge difference because it's not just Mike who's buying the lottery ticket, but you got all kinds of people all over the country buying lottery tickets, and somebody's going to win this. Okay? And the exact same thing is happening here, is that the question is not whether Sally Clark, what is her probability, but there's somebody, let's say, in the country of England, is going to have two SIDS death uh, in the same family. So once again, it's this issue of uh, multiple testing and apophenia. So basically, the prosecutor's fallacy, turns out, is the same thing as multiple testing that we've been talking about. Um, and what, what I hope that you appreciate is that actually innumeracy has cost. Okay? In terms of medical care, you're probably doing a lot of things that are not true, and you may be wasting billions and billions and billions of dollars. Okay? You may even be harming people and you may actually be a pawn of pharmaceutical companies rather than uh, a true student of science. And in the case of uh, Sally Clark, in numeracy, actually kills. Yeah. So um, I'd like to finish with this uh, slide here. Does anybody know what that uh, represents, what that is from? So this is a pretty famous painting uh, uh, painted by Raphael in the Renaissance. And he's depicting, actually, the academy, which is uh, Plato's uh, academy. So uh, actually, Aristotle, if you remember, was one of Plato's uh, um, uh, students or disciples. And it's, it's actually depicting the scene in Athens where, uh, where, where um, Plato was training his uh, disciples. And supposedly, on the doorway to the academy hung a sign. Does anybody know what the sign said? The sign actually said, 
that let no one ignorant of mathematics enter here. Okay? And quite honestly, I think that sign needs to hang in front of every single hospital and every single medical school because if you don't understand some of these simple concepts, you're going to be responsible for a lot of lives, a lot of harm, and a lot of wasted money. So I'd like to finish by just simply asking you, are you numerate? Okay. Thank you. Yeah, so I think, um, I think no one's really free of blame if you want to think of it that way because I think even if you have no financial motivations, I think um, in, in the academic world, uh, you know, publications is really currency. So more papers you publish, you know, more advancement you're going to get in your academic career. So there's a great deal of pressure just you know, leaving the financial side alone. But if you were to measure empirically which articles tend to exaggerate findings, Okay? By far, it's the pharmaceutical company. It's the financial bias that outweighs all the other ones. It, that's not to say that everybody else is innocent. And, and you're right. Even journals actually f uh, fall into this issue because journals uh, don't make their primary income from our subscriptions. That's what some of you may assume, that you, know, you, you guys might pay, you know, let's say, $200 a year for the New England Journal of Medicine. That's not where their major revenue comes from. It actually comes from pharmaceutical companies, so they are also have this conflict of interest to publish papers and to kind of be careful about, about what they say in there. I mean, you know, it, it's kind of something that is maybe not fully appreciated by a lot of people, but is a huge issue. Yes, sir? Well, free registration also helps against publication bias. Correct. That's correct. So, so, yeah, so the question was uh, pre-registration should help with publication bias, and you're absolutely right. That's the exact reason why they are now requiring all randomized control trials to be registered. And so, so in other words, you know, the journal editors have recognized all of the problems that we've been discussing, and, and at least one idea that's going to really mitigate this problem is to say you have to register before you do a study Okay, as to what you're going to do, what the primary outcome is. So everybody knows up front what you're doing. And that was the point of that article by Mathau. Okay, Remember, that, that was the article where they looked at to say, okay, since now it's required that all these randomized trials be registered, are they actually registering? It turns out only half were actually registered. And of, the, of those that were actually registered, you know, a significant number of them changed their outcome after the fact. So they were not really complying with the rules. So if people really follow the rule, yes, he would get rid of the problem. But, uh, but people are kind of going around it, unfortunately. So uh, in that article, only a third of the randomized controlled trials really met the idea of, of, uh, of pre-registration. Yes, in the back. 
know most of your talk was about type 1 error. Yeah. The type 2 error is just as challenging. And I think yeah. we've learned that maybe how the backlog numerous times. What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so. Um, Sure. So actually, if I'm asked to come back, uh, that's one of the topics I could talk about, and it's the idea of the Ioannidis equation, which looks at both alpha error and the beta error together uh, so that uh, you can see um, you know, what kind of problems get introduced. Obviously, time does not allow us to go into a, like a whole another lecture on the beta error, but it, it, it does do exactly that as well. So the higher the beta error, the, the less likely what you find is also false. So that's actually less intuitive than what most people might think, but uh, it actually um, um, makes it much more likely to be from random chance as well. So it is also a very important uh, issue. I think uh, there was a question in the middle there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about the use of the point of five alpha error as a hard stop? Yes. Sure. Yes, so, so that's another excellent point. So actually, there are a lot of people who think we should move away from the p-value of less than 0.05 for exactly that reason and think more in terms of confidence intervals. In fact, the people who sort of came up with the concept of p-values never intended it to be used in this very rigid way. Uh, so unfortunately, we're misapplying or misusing the concept. So I would agree with you, and many people would agree with you. It's just that tradition is so you know, established that, 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 that uh, it won't be published unless it's less than 0 0.05. And so uh, that's why we're getting into some of these, uh, of these uh, uh, issues. Dan, yeah? What do you mean? Uh, Um, well, one actually is octreotide for variceal bleeding. So, you know, it's, I think everybody does it to my knowledge. And in fact, if I don't do it, somebody gets on my case, especially the GI folks, okay? And so, uh, I mean, everybody's doing it, but I would encourage you to look at the literature. It's actually not very convincing. Um, so, um, I mean, it, it's not a particularly dangerous drug, so I don't lose sleep over it, but, uh, but I do think we're actually wasting money. And I mean, that's my opinion about the literature. I'm not saying you have to agree with that. But I think there are many examples in reality. I mean, you know, you know if you look back when the, uh, um, the uh, tight glycemic control was introduced, there was a huge amount of fanfare, and everybody you know, got on the bandwagon. And of course, that's been you know, reversed. There's the activated protein C and, you know, High frequency ventilation, I and mean, there's so many examples of this. Yeah. The exact study, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
yeah, yeah. And that's what makes some of these interpretations ultimately, you know, a little bit subjective, I think, because you have to sort of, you know, like put different weights on the comparison. So I think you can make those kind of arguments. Although my personal view is you put the, the totality of the evidence together, I don't think there's very good evidence that that's what we should be doing anymore. So, no? Okay, very good. Thank you very much. Yeah.